This is an ABC podcast. What did they do? What did they explore? What did they discover? That's a myth. The people living here, we're still living here. They're gone and dead and no one even knows their name. Lansborough and Burke have joined the Depotrodon, have gone extinct with the dinosaur. Hi, Rebecca Huntley here with the History Listen on RN. Have you ever seen a tree carved with markings and wondered what those marks meant? Or maybe in your suburb there are trees planted to commemorate an historical figure or event? In 1770, Captain Cook's crew came ashore at Kurnell, south of present-day Sydney, and carved the date and name of their ship in a tree, then sailed northward as they claimed possession of the whole east coast. But the land marked by the British already belonged to someone else, the first Australians. Today, Marika Duchinsky, Gamilaroi woman, will take us from the Gulf country of northwest Queensland, across the Blue Mountains, and into Western New South Wales before heading south into Victoria for the story of carving up the country, looking for trees that have become symbols of our contested history, but also markers of a culture bound in deep time. And a warning, some of the content in this program contains graphic violence. A nation chants but we know your story already. The ancestral serpent, a creature larger than storm clouds, came down from the stars, laden with its own creative enormity. It moved graciously, as if you'd been watching with the eyes of a bird hovering in the sky far above the ground. Looking down at the serpent's wet body, glistening from the ancient sunlight, long before man was a creature who could contemplate the next moment in time. It came down billions of years ago to crawl on its heavy belly all around the wet clay soils in the Gulf of Carpentaria. So begins Alexis Wright's novel Carpentaria. I'm Marika, a Gamilaroi woman, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands which we move through and the lands from which listeners join us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Burgtown. Please remain seated with your seatbelts firmly fastened until the end. We start in Burgtown, in northwest Queensland, what pastoralists called the Plains of Promise. But the sudden takeover of land came at a heavy price. I'm uh, Marandu Bolanyi Yana. Bolanyi is my skin. I'm from Mungabai, Burktown. That's the ancient name for Burktown. I'm a gung leader man. I'm currently, or have been, I suppose, since the formation, the chairman of, of the tribe. But in Mungabai, I'm the proper Dulmata, the senior traditional owner, the boss, uh, which my dad was. But he died when I was young, so. And my brother abdicated the throne. I got an older brother, and I guess he wanted to party. So I got stuck with the crowd. The crowd rests heavy on the brow, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but Mungabai was what we were told is the name of this place by our creator. And, um, and it's a small community surrounded by major rivers that have come from inland freshwater rivers and the last 40, 50 k's of my salt water. It's about the bottom of the Gulf. They say the arsehole into the Gulf unfairly, I think. But um, it's very rich, fertile fishing hunting grounds. Yeah, it's very flat country. It's not, a, it's not rocky or hilly, so you can 
see people coming a mile away or you get beautiful horizon shots of sunsets, sunrises, they're always brilliant out here and the stars are because you have such a, that's almost 50-50 of earth and sky here. There used to be a famous tree in Burketown, the Lansborough tree, which was carved by William Lansborough in his search for Burke and Wills. They were the leaders of the ill-fated 1860-1861 expedition from the south to the north of the continent, which started in Melbourne and, on the return journey, ended at Cooper's Creek. Well, the Lansborough tree is no longer there. Uh, it's been burnt to the ground because they were destroying our sacred sites back in the day, so I don't know who, what particular individual might have done that, but obviously as Aboriginal, a lot of um, white historic sites get burnt or destroyed around the community. They only have one left. We have thousands of sites left, and I guess that was the message. You really want to play this game? Respect our cultural heritage and we'll respect yours. The importance of marking trees cannot be overrated. The marks should only be made on strong, healthy trees and at conspicuous points, and the directions should be unmistakably clear and accurate. William Lansborough, in his Exploration of Australia from Carpentaria to Melbourne, with a special reference to the settlement of available country, 1866. One of the things that explorers did as they travelled through regions like the Gulf and other places is they marked trees. So today there are still hundreds of trees that are marked with the initials of explorers and sometimes with the dates of their campsites or the number of their camp. These were like the early roads that the people who had the explorer journals and who were venturing into the bush and off the map by reference to these marked trees. At least that was the intention of people like Lansborough as they marked these places. Dr Richard Martin a sociocultural anthropologist at the University of Queensland who's been working in Burketown for over 10 years. But over generations, in these kinds of places where white settlement has always been fragile and it's always been shadowed by the possibility of failure and retreat, these kinds of monumental trees, they became symbols and icons of European presence in the area and the substance of that kind of colonisation that people came to cherish and protect as historical heritage sites. In Burketown, where Lansborough began his journey in search of Burke and Wills, he wrote so positively about the pastoral potential of the location that people subsequently accused him of being more interested in finding suitable pastoral land than actually locating the, the explorers who'd gone missing, but subsequent to all of those relief expeditions, there was a real frenzied land rush of settlers into the region with cattle, and the landscape was rapidly and totally changed, and there was huge conflict and change for the Indigenous people who'd lived there for many thousands of years before that time and a warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that the following content contains graphic descriptions of historic violence. I much regret to state the blacks have become very troublesome about here lately. Within 10 miles of Burketown, they speared and cut stakes from the rumps of several horses. As soon as it was known, the native police under Sub-Inspector Err went out and, I am informed, 
succeeded in shooting upwards of 30 blacks. No sooner was this done than a report came in that Mr Cannon had been murdered by blacks at Little and Hetz's station near the Norman River. Mr Err went off immediately in that direction, and his success, I hear, was complete. One mob of 14 rounded up, another of nine, and a last mob of eight he succeeded with his troopers in shooting. In the latter lot, there was one black who would not die after receiving 18 or 20 bullets, but a trooper speedily put an end to his existence by smashing his skull. Brisbane Courier, the 9th of June, 1868. My grandmother had walked along and seen massacres and um, had to hide in trees from being shot and seen people run around under her, under the tree when she was a little girl getting shot. So um, people think I'm a bit of a phenomenon. My dad was uh, far more of a phenomenon that he did it at a time where he could easily have been taken out the back and shot or hung. So um, you know, I, I sensed that in the house. I saw that as a kid, um, many instances. Um, in my lifetime, thanks to me father's generation, we've been able to set a a vision and um, we're just following through on it but we're now one of the biggest past release owners in, a, in the lower gulf. Some of the other things here we've renamed the river so the old bridge here used to be named Albert River which was the uh, monarch of the time in England uh, but now it's a Gumbamunda bridge the new bridge is named um, the brand new bridge they built is named after us the old name so uh, the new hall the big community hall they built that's Nijinda Dulkra that means uh, our community or our country where we sit down together and meet. It's great for whitefellas and outsiders, they find it exotic. Uh, you know, James Street or Bell Street, all this is just rubbish and no, no story to it, no essence. Um, I, think, I guess they ran out of names or ingenuity or creativity one day and just started, you know, like Captain Cook, the chili bugger going through the straits. How lacking in creativity must or intellect must you be to name an island Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? You know, can't you name it after your uncle or something back in England? But no, he ran out of names. He must have had a very limited vocabulary, that bloke. So, yeah. The other problem the Europeans had was they couldn't get uh, their big bullock drays, you know, 30 bullocks and a ton of bloody supplies, or tons of supplies, anywhere up into the northern. Uh, regions they needed to go to during the wet season because it was three or four months, it was boggy as hell, you know, they just sat there. But the camel, the camel could walk through the mud, the camel didn't need much food, the camel didn't need any water. And the only bloke who could handle the camel was the Afghan. So they bought the Afghan camel drovers over. So there would be no whites anywhere in Northern Australia if it weren't for the Afghans and Chinese. And it's strange to see them turning around saying, we don't, we, you know, Asians don't belong here. If it wasn't for the Afghan camel drovers and the Asians that developed the market gardens, I think. You know, white people wouldn't live anywhere from the Capricorn, from Rocky Bundaberg to bloody um, Kununurra to Kimberley's today. And we just got to be true to our history, all Australians. It, it uh, belittles us, it makes us less of an, a person or an intellect in our head to, um, to deny that, deny the truth, you know. Truth's not going to hurt you, it's not a snake. Pick it up, look at it, make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Well, you don't have to spout it, but nor should you deny it, you know. The truth's the truth. It is what it is. In 1813, explorers made their way west across the Blue Mountains. They followed a well-worn path already established by Aboriginal people, which would later become the Great Western Highway. A tree near Katoomba, rumoured to have been marked by the explorers, would become a strange and contested symbol of that crossing. 
My name's Siobhan Lavelle and I'm an historical archaeologist and heritage consultant, but I'm here today because I've done some research in the past 25 years on the explorer's tree at Katoomba. We're looking at the tree right now, so what are we actually looking at here on the highway? The stump itself is comprised now partly of concrete, but also there are some remnants of the original tree, the living wood or the bark of the tree. Because it's not alive anymore, it's actually held together by metal bands around it to try and keep it in position. And there's also been concrete poured inside the stump and on top of the stump to protect it. I can say, as a local who used to drive this road at night, it was somewhat disconcerting, especially on a misty or rainy night, the tree would kind of loom up, floodlit out of the mist as you were trying to negotiate a dangerous corner. The rotting stump, standing mute and sentinel beside the smooth face of the Great Western Road, is one of the most precious heirlooms of our race. And no reasonable effort should be spared to perpetuate it. Blue Mountains Echo, July 1928. The explorer's journals don't say anything about we marked a tree near Katoomba. All the other things that happened in the 50 years or so after the crossing, nobody mentions a marked tree. Between 1813 and the 1860s, there's 50 years in which there is no mention of a marked tree. The first mention of the tree is in about 1867, and it's when a clergyman from Parramatta, who's also a botanist, suddenly makes this comment. I may mention that the black butt on which the late Mr W Lawson cut his initials with a tomahawk in 1813 still presents the initials as legible as ever. This interesting tree, so intimately connected with the first expedition over the Blue Mountains, is still standing on the side of the Bathurst Road at the summit of Pulpit Hill. Reverend William Wools, Sydney Morning Herald, the 26th of August, 1867. After that, the first illustration of a marked tree is in the 1870s, and after that, as people are looking for what would we celebrate, they start looking for these um, evidences or relics of events in the past. Everybody starts talking about, yes, I saw a tree. They can't agree on what the tree exactly looked like. They can't even agree whether all the initials of all the explorers were on the tree, um, whether there was a B, an L and a W. Was there a W for William Lawson? was there a W for William Wentworth? So, you know, everybody starts being very confident in their assertions that there was a marked tree, that they all knew it was associated with this event, but they vary widely in what they remember. This was a world where no white man had ever been before. Time did not exist. Life was balanced on the razor's edge of the ridge. This is the soundtrack from Road to the West, a 1965 documentary held in the National Film and Sound Archive. The winter rains had come and the frigid air pierced and numbed them. The story of the crossing of the Blue Mountains fits within a kind of post-colonial and settler society. So those kinds of foundational stories always start with a great navigator, someone like a Christopher Columbus or a James Cook. The navigator discovers somewhere 
a colony is established and then there's this process of going out and exploring and claiming the land. May 28th, travelled five and three quarter miles until 5pm when we made camp on the edge of a precipice. Discovered to our great satisfaction that what we had considered barren land below was forest land covered with good grass. The journey had taken little more than a fortnight, but the barrier was broken forever. Blacksland, the businessman, knew his future was assured. Lawson was already planning to take the first cattle across to the plains, and Wentworth felt the vastness of his native land take possession of him. Now the task belonged to the road makers. The issue of whether the tree is an authentic relic is absolutely irrelevant. You know, if you get lost or bogged down in were there initials? How many initials? Were they real initials? Did the explorers carry an axe on their expedition? That's actually irrelevant. What's relevant is what were the stories that Australia told itself? Who was included in those stories and who was not? And more importantly, where do we want to go from here? On the other side of the Blue Mountains, it was and still is far more than just grazing country. It's Gamilaroi and Wiradjuri country, a landscape etched with cultures thousands of generations old. In the small town of Baradine, on the edge of the Piliga forest, Gamilaroi man Merv Sutherland tells us the story of how one tree was taken and came home after almost nine decades. This is where I reckon this is probably as close as we'll ever get to where the, the tree actually once stood. Um, so we're on a sandy rise in amongst um, cleared paddocks. We probably will never ever know for sure the exact location of the tree. It marked the burial of five Aboriginal men. Uh, it was a large cypress pine tree and Fortunately for us, back in 1917, when the Forestry Commission were harvesting cypress pine logs in that area, the Forest Guard from Narrabri sent a letter off to the museum in, in Sydney, to the Australian Museum, asking if uh, they had any value, did they want this tree, uh, rather than sending it to a sawmill and having it cut into boards. Barradine Forest Office, the 24th of February, 1917. Subject. Aboriginal totem tree. Sir, I loaded the above tree yesterday on one of Mr Pynam's horse teams which is leaving Baradine for Coonabarabran tomorrow. I instructed the carrier to put it on the railway truck for Sydney. This tree was carved 1876. Mr J Leithhead was present when it was done. R.B. Harris, Forest Guard, District Forests, Narrabri. A common symbol we see is like a diamond figure, uh, and, and that's used a lot in the northwest area here around Barradine, Warren, Trangy. Um, so there's, there's a, a diamond, and there's also the sort of a wavy type um, carve, carving. 
and yeah, that they range. The unique bit about the carved trees in New South Wales, I guess, is because they're predominantly found here. Um, we don't know why they're not found in the northern parts of Queensland or the Territory or Western Australia. I think it's the tribal groups from around here that um, have, have used that type of custom over years. Um, ceremonial trees they call, they call them, other people call them burial trees um, and there are certain trees I think that have been classified as boundary markers. And the, the trees were carved by the, uh, the Aboriginal men, uh, I understand, and, but that may not be the case everywhere. There may have been women involved in the burials, um, but predominantly it was men who did the carving using their stone axes. I was fortunate enough to be sent to Sydney for some training and my first lot of training was repatriation. And it was at the Australian Museum in Sydney and I thought, I've got to ask the question. The information I had was right. They did have a carved tree from Barradeen. They swapped it for a stone artefact collection with Museum Victoria. So then I spoke to the Lands Council here at Barradeen and see if we can actually talk to the museum about getting the tree returned. And we broke new ground with this tree. It was the first tree ever returned to New South Wales from a Victorian museum. Yeah, it's, it's opened the doors for other museums now to, to do similar things in, in returning carved trees. Can you describe what it was like to have the tree repatriated to Baradine and the memories of that day that you can recall? Best feeling ever was bringing it back into Baradine. The day was an amazing day. We had an invitation out to the wider community and we had a massive turn up. We had a roll off of about 150 people um, come to the Memorial Hall. We had a smoking ceremony to welcome the tree back. And it was just an amazing day. We could see Aboriginal people and the wider community come together for the greater good. Having this significant object returned, which told a massive part of the story of Baradine's history, it's like placing a jigsaw puzzle into a place where you've been trying to find that one piece to fill that void and, and perhaps tell part of the story. Although removed from its original place, this carved tree is now looked after by the Baradine Local Aboriginal Land Council and is held in its keeping place. It's a source of great pride for the community and is a testament to Merv's efforts in tracking it down. Michael Ross, CEO of the Land Council, agrees. Having this tree back on site, the significance that that does for our own members as well as the wider community and our visitors that are intrigued to, to hear the story of it. And for our own members, it's like having a party a return. This, this come from here, it should be here and it is here now and I think everyone gets satisfaction out of that. To me, I think it's, it's very significant that we recognise the first Australians and that's what the tree symbolises to me, that there were many people here living harmoniously in the Pilliga forest along Barradine Creek before Europeans came. These are grandfather trees and grandmother trees. Hours of a tense standoff finally come to an end as the police retreat. Oh, 
we're calling on Josh Frydenberg to put in an emergency declaration to protect this area. Andrew's government Last year, a large-scale Victorian highway upgrade near Ararat proposed the bulldozing of more than 260 sacred Japurung trees, 800 years old, including birthing trees. Negotiations are ongoing, with traditional owner groups keeping vigil at a protest embassy on country in a continual campaign to save the trees. I sat in that tree with my youngest daughter and just closed my eyes and, and felt the presence of my ancestors. It's just, it's huge. It's like a church. I'm Lydia Thorpe. I'm a Gunai Gunditjmara woman. I come from a strong matriarchal line of the Japarung women and all of the trees have their own distinction and the birthing tree in particular has been culturally modified over hundreds of years. You know, thousands of babies have been born in this area. So the blood of our mothers, the blood of my ancestors runs deep into this area and it's nurtured these trees. When you look at, you know, Notre Dame and the fanfare around fire that occurred there and, and the outcry and the public support around that spiritual place, it's the same thing, it's no less. And so to destroy our spiritual place of connection is actually destroying us as a people. We've journeyed across country, histories, myths and cultures and looked at the ways in which the marking of landscapes holds both contested and deep cultural meaning. Some sites reveal themselves to us immediately, while others elude us. Trees are one part of the story, and an important one. In the desperate anxiety of Europeans to make their mark on places that weren't theirs, they willfully ignored landscapes already richly encoded with meaning. Landscapes that sustain us, and not the other way around. If only Aboriginal presence, traditional knowledge and culture was valued instead of erased. We call it Mabuntha, the cardinal people of Bedek call it Yipipi. In Burktown, there's a phenomenon known as the morning glory. Clouds roll in across the salt flats. Marindu Yana knows what it means as he looks out to the horizon. We believe it's, um, it's like a reset, you know, across the country, refreshing it and picking up and taking all of the deceased to the Milky Way. This vast land may have been carved and mapped in the Western tradition, but its stories are always known to some. We just need to listen. And we're still here, we've been here 65,000 years, you know. We changed the landscape here. There was a rainforest from here to Lawn Hills. There were 11 foot man eating kangaroos, three ton wombats, you know, we live with them. We're still here, they're gone. So I guess Lansborough and Burke have joined the Depotrodon and the others have gone extinct with the dinosaur. 
our guide in carving up the country was Gamilaroi woman Marika Duchinsky. The program was produced by Minna Mullen-Schulter and Emma McGurr, with sound engineering by John Jacobs. The producers would like to thank Sharon Veal of GML Heritage and ABC executive producer Michelle Rayner. I'm Rebecca Huntley and this is The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.